This is In Focus from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. Each episode of In Focus brings you in-depth analysis and perspective from a different corner of our global network of experts. Kreis, a partner in Control Risk's cybersecurity practice. In this episode of In Focus Cyber, we will be discussing the evolution of the ransomware landscape tied to the Ukraine crisis. With me today, I have Joe Buckley, an associate director in our cyber threat intelligence team. Welcome, Joe. Hi, folks. And also joining us today on the podcast is Mark Fawcett, an Associate Director in our Cyber Response Practice in London. Welcome, Mark, as well. Good afternoon. These two guys have been dealing over the past few months almost every single day with the issue of ransomware groups. And in particular, when we were talking about this a few days ago, they mentioned that they'd started to see some quite significant changes coming with the conflict in Ukraine. And those changes are really what we're here to talk about today. So guys, I think it'd be really interesting to first hear from you. What has been your key observations since the onset of the crisis in Ukraine and in particular with how these ransomware groups have been behaving around the world? And maybe we can start with you, Joe. Over time, groups evolve. They bring new tactics into their methodologies. They move from purely disruption into stealing data and leaking data. And these trends move quickly, but certainly not as quickly as the changes we've seen since the Ukraine conflict has begun. And and some of the kind of key variables and changes are really quite drastic in the number of victims we're seeing targeted by specific groups really increasing, you know, over twofold. We're seeing key sectors that sort of align to the sort of strategic priorities of nation states and sort of geopolitical factors being disproportionately targeted by ransomware groups. Traditionally, it was very easy to say a ransomware, almost certainly the groups out there to make money. And through this paradigm shift since the conflict, it's not that fundamentally the entire attack has changed. It's that the motives now are potentially also inclusive of geopolitical motives. Mark, is that what you're seeing? When I get a call from an organization that's been been victim, they will ask questions around, you know, am, am I being targeted for who I am? Am I being targeted for w- what sector I work in? What sort of geography that I sit within? You know, historically, the answer's typically been, well, y- you might feel like that because you're, you're sort of being victim of, you know, quite a horrific sort of event, but it's probably unlikely. It's probably just financially motivated cyber criminal groups. Whereas actually in the last two to three weeks, the answer has been maybe. I don't think we can really sit here and say, certainly from 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 my perspective of responding to the incidents, that we've got data on this. I'm not I'm not saying we've we've conclusively attributed certain attacks and we've managed to identify that the threat actor was targeting this organization because of you know certain you know nation state affiliations, but certainly we've had to take it into account. You know, the 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 scenario that we have to paint, which is all part of this sort of crisis management planning, is now unfortunately, a little bit more bleak. The worst case scenario is unfortunately becoming the likely one. Are you seeing companies, in your experience, Mark, sort of being proactive about adapting to that situation? Or is it usually after they've been hit that they turn around and like, "Mm, we should have done this differently? The playbooks that organizations have to respond to these incidents go into a certain level of detail of 
how do we actually rebuild in a safe manner post a hack? They don't often go to enough detail. And, and I think that's something that we consistently see if they exist at all. But steps such as password resets and, and Kerberos ticket resets to ensure we're eradicating the threat actor's ability to get back onto the network. Now we're spending a lot more time talking about it. When I say now, I mean in the last two to three weeks, because if there is a potential nation state link, the motive is no longer just to make money. It's no longer just to get in hold an organization to ransom, maybe leak the data if you don't make a payment and then get out and move on to the next victim. The motives change. It's maybe they want to get back in. Maybe they want to do more damage, which is concerning from a rebuild and recovery perspective. I think unfortunately, because of the heavy sort of focus on sanctions that we're seeing, and I know it's something that control risks, not just in the ransomware space, there's lots of talk about it. There's so much fear right now that the sanction landscape is changing. Then even if you were to perhaps make a concession payment, organizations are worried that in a week's time, if that or that threat actor becomes sanctioned, they're going to get into a lot of trouble. Payment to prevent the leak of data, payment to get a decryption tool, it's just off the table. I, I think that's a really interesting point because it, it's probably one of the biggest questions that we hear all the time is, is there how many people pay and what's the sort of process for this? And Joe, when, when you look at sort of on the dark web or on these ransomware leak sites, you do see a huge number of companies who, who have their data leaked. Could that also be part of that equation that people just aren't paying anymore? The stats, the volumes of targeted attacks that we're seeing and, and to the number of victims we're observing named on the, on the dark web and through other sources has you know, increased so substantially that even sort of considering that there might have been a step change potentially in the payment landscape, that that isn't necessarily a key factor to consider. And, and again, I'm talking about here some of the groups that have been very public in sort of putting down their their stall and their strategy in sort of aligning to, to sort of certain states that have been involved in the conflict. I think it'd be great to dive a little bit more into the meat of it. So going at a tactical level and at a technical level and what you guys are seeing. So Joe, can you maybe talk about I'm really interested in understanding if whether or not we've seen an evolution in the vectors that are utilized. We've seen an evolution in the toolkits that these groups have been leveraging. And particularly when we think about your point of, oh, well, there, there may be a confusion or, or sort of a blurring of those boundaries between state-sponsored and criminal uh, usually when we talk about states, we're talking about APTs, we're talking about zero-day vulnerabilities, we're talking about all these wonderful things that terrify the InfoSec community for right reasons. Is that what you're starting to see in the ransomware landscape today? Absolutely, there are. I think nothing that is so significant that we would say it's been a step change in the same way that the targeting volumes and the sectors that are being targeted have really drastically changed, including the geographies as well. But I think what, what what's sort of really interesting from the tactical side is that these groups really are focused so much on efficiency. They run like businesses, they co-locate themselves in office blocks and profit, profitability is sort of the aim of the game really. And and, and yeah, okay, we're, say, we're saying here as well, obviously, that there are geopolitical motives that, that go alongside that, that generation of revenue. Uh, and partially this is because of the relationships that they hold and sort of maintaining effective operations without disruption as well, partially. But look, for as long as we've been in this industry and as long as we probably will be in this industry, phishing will, will, will be the key vector. And we are seeing, we have seen obviously during COVID leveraging of 
COVID fishing hooks. We've seen leveraging of Ukraine-related conflict fishing hooks right. and targeting of, 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 of companies using those sort of techniques. But broadly, from an access vector perspective, we're not seeing directly in relation to the, to the conflict any key changes. But I think if we look at ransomware more broadly, one area that I, I am concerned around and I think really is changing quite drastically and quickly is, is the sort of insider threat right. aspect of enabling an access to a network. And some quite high profile companies, certainly in the last sort of few months, have been breached by ransomware groups. Just on that insider threat piece, are we talking about the brick and mortar insiders, like the guys coming into the office giving access? Or are you seeing, because I remember a couple of years ago when, when the pandemic started and everybody started remote working, we started talking about these hybrid insider threats, essentially digital insiders rather than physical insiders. Is that part of what you're concerned about in terms of these vectors? It's no longer about you know, I'm going to hire somebody to go into the control risks office in London and then sort of plug a USB stick somewhere. It's as easy as, you know, somebody's using Office 365 and all of a sudden it's a bit easier at home to suggest to somebody, hey, why don't you give me your credentials or why don't you give me that access? People who've heard me speak before will have heard the example I give around the thwarted Tesla insider incident where an insider inside the bricks and mortar, here to be clear, was given a USB stick and was also given a probably a brown envelope full of of, of notes up to the tune of, I think, 150,000 US dollars given to him by a ransomware group with folks on the ground in the US uh, with the intention of breaching and, and disrupting Tesla's systems. So that is happening. It's definitely facilitated by the sheer profits groups are making. But look, I think in terms of volume and, and, and certainly the sort of key, I think, inside the threats is, is what you've alluded to in those maybe that are less involved or sort of moved away from, from the sort of oversight of an office-based system that we're sort of now in sort of remote working world, I think is also sort of combined with the motives and the capabilities that ransomware groups have to cultivate insiders on the ground as well. We'll do a full podcast on insiders at some point, because I think that's something we spend hours on. But Mark, coming back to you in terms of your experience on the ground, have you seen a change in the vectors and the TTPs that these groups have? Great question. I, I think it's maybe too soon to tell. We're living this right now. If you'd imagine the, you know, the access to the network that is maybe going to result in some form of ransomware and examples we're talking about, that's probably coming out the woodwork as we speak. The thing that I'll sort of put out there and maybe come back to it so that it doesn't really answer your question right now, Nick, is you know, we, we've been pretty quiet for the last couple of weeks. The organizations we have seen and that have sort of continued to call us, there are sort of interesting links given their geography, given their sector. Obviously, can't, can't give, give too much away for, for confidentiality reasons. But I think we're about to see a, a pretty big a pretty big peak in terms of the cases. And that's when we'll start to see whether the, the vectors are changing. I'm not a betting man, but if I was, I, I'd probably argue I, I don't think the vectors will have changed. What we've seen historically, certainly with things like you know, business email compromise is always a good example to come back to because it's sort of easy to conceptualize. Cyber criminals have a very clear pattern of making their, li their lives easy for themselves. And there's no indication that phishing has been fixed. Um, you know, it, it's still happening. So why are cyber criminals going to suddenly change something? There's been no indication that, you know, manufacturers of perimeter devices have suddenly solved the fact that their devices have vulnerabilities. They're still constantly releasing security patches, which organizations are unfortunately often a little bit, certainly ones that call us anyway, often a little bit too slow to apply that patch. 
that's going to continue. And if you're a cyber criminal, obviously we're talking about here potentially that their motives are slightly changing, but either way, they're still the same person. They've still got what they're comfortable doing and really good at, hence why we're here around talking about it. I don't think they'll change. Uh, you know, they're, they're going to get in what will, and I think that's what we're sort of talking about more broadly is the objectives of what they do once they're in and the overall modus operandi of these threat actors will start to change. Yeah, Mark, that that's the key point here. And, and, and sort of the harder thing to track is not necessarily the tactics themselves that are being used. We can see, you know, Cobalt Strike being being kind of initiated right. on on a network. That's been around since like 2015, 16 or something. I think I've seen it in most sort of intelligence reports since right. I started my career. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, still, it's still being used and repurposed. And, and there'll be as well sort of specific Trojans that we know these groups love to repurpose from their days of focusing on financial fraud and targeting banking customers. And maybe the difficult thing that we'll see and understand a bit later is how those tools were used and how they were used in these attempts to sort of speed up these attacks, to, to get to that disruption sooner. Maybe if you're less financially motivated and, and sort of more inclined to sort of meet a disruptive or sort of geopolitically driven end, then potentially those might sort of lead to faster compromises. Again, maybe looking at the types of systems and the sort of types of files that have been exfiltrated again we might see slight deviations in the right. folders and the sort of the, the staff members that are being targeted and ultimately the, the the information that's been stolen and i think the last point as well and, and and sort of thinking about again the propensity for state actors and for criminals to share their tools and their capabilities and, and sort of how they're, they're breaching networks i think maybe as well down the line what we also see as well is adoption of sort of state tactics in putting a back door in place to to get back in the network. That kind of goes back to what Mark was saying, right? Like one of the key things that you're dealing with at the moment is the fact that whilst you're dealing with the immediate crisis, when you're looking at the rebuild, a lot of the concern is what's actually been left behind. The, the sort of worst thing that could possibly happen to an organization that's just been hacked and they've just had a massive operational outage is they get hacked again and they have to go back to their customers again and say sorry again. So, you know, there has to be a lot of emphasis and there always is on how do we rebuild safely and securely. I, again, I'm, I'm not sitting here suggesting we've got specific evidence that more backdoors are being left or more effort is being put in, but certainly looking back at, you know, these criminals and back to the premise of this conversation, perhaps where the cyber criminal groups, their modus operandi starting to merge a little bit more and closer towards the nation state objective. You can see how leaving more backdoors and potentially going back and doing a, a, a second attack, which is again, significantly more damaging on reputation, might suddenly become of interest. You know, retaliation attacks in the, in, in the cases we've dealt with historically, unlikely, unless you do something to really upset this threat actor, perhaps in dialogue. But if you sort of treat them with respect and move on, retaliation attacks, it's quite rare in our experience. Maybe we'll start to see that come here. And, and that's the, the advice that we're giving to our clients and hence the comment of worst case becoming maybe the likely one of, you need to be thinking about retaliation attacks. You need to be thinking about these backdoors and the environments, and you need to put more effort into scrubbing your, your sort of systems when you're bringing backups back online. Right. I, I, I don't want to step into an overly nerdy sort of self-referential framework yet, but I'm reminded of sort of when Carbonac popped up on the scene and we were talking about APT criminal organizations or APT criminal capabilities. Are we moving towards APT ransomware groups? I mean, Joe, you and I had spoken about, you know, after WannaCry, after NotPetya, the use of ransomware capabilities by nation states as part of disruptive operations for political purposes 
became clear. Are we now seeing the use of persistence capabilities by ransomware groups as potentially something to watch out for in the future? Absolutely. Yeah. Start with a bit of a comparison of, of how groups with a financial motive sort of prepare and, and actually build their attacks versus a nation state. In some ways, I think there's a sort of step change in that sort of initial compromise piece where a criminal group will want to ultimately build a quite effective list of potential targets will then sort of go through that list of compromised devices and, and companies and prioritize and sort of pick the ones that they want sort of to, to breach. And for them, you know, maybe not as much as a nation state actor, that sort of consistent compromise and persistence piece is, is as vital, but absolutely they, they want to sort of maintain a botnet that they can use, they can sell, that they can sort of pass on to their criminal cohorts. And again, I think if we look at the way in which they operate as groups, themselves beyond purely sort of the tools that they're using. The sort of spate of leaks that we've seen around criminal groups recently, I think, has given some really good insights into the volume of folks who are operating as, as a sort of business essentially together and sort of using these specific ransomware tools. You know, Conti is a good example, is a group of tens, if, if not nearly towards 100 uh, sort of individuals who are specialists in various aspects and of network compromise. Joe, just Conti's the group, if I'm not mistaken, that at the beginning of the crisis sort of said quite publicly, we're going to hack anybody who is sort of sanctioning Russia, essentially. Any organization pulling out of Russia, we're going to target. Is that right? Absolutely correct. Yeah. Yeah. Any, any state responding to Russia, cyber attacking Russia. Yeah. Um, would sort of, you know, experience a, a sort of a retaliatory mm. attack by Conti. Did um, we actually see that? Well, I I think maybe maybe too too much of a stretch, but I think we have in response. Right. Okay. I, th I think we've seen a couple of Conti cases. Joe jo would uh, and Unit would tell me off and maybe drawing too much of a correlation <laughs> from not not enough examples or not a big big enough data set and probably not using your correct lingo either. Um, but the Kate the Conti cases we have seen recently you can very easily sit there and see, I see why mm. um, Conti have targeted them because it cuts off something that is of interest to this nation state and, and significantly of interest, not only by geography, but also by sector. You know, again, might be fluke. I'm maybe drawing a conclusion from too little data, but we were saying it and the client was saying it and they're like, taking right. this into account, what do we do about it? Yeah, I mean, the, the trend tracks, I think, and, and, and often sort of Mark and I, have quite interesting conversations because you're seeing the start of a trend and, and maybe you're sort of dealing with patient zero, ground zero, or, or what will become a key strategic threat trend that, you know, the cyber threat intelligence folks will then sort of start talking about down the line. I mean, the stats track to what you're saying, I think, Mark, the energy sector, the utilities sector, key services are disproportionately targeted by specifically Conti post the 24th of February, which might be a good indicator of, of, of those sectors right. um, coming more into focus. But as well, I think we look at the key states that, that have responded to the yeah. conflict in sort of using sanctions and other means to, to sort of um, to, to, to sort of punish Russia right. uh, for the conflict. And they as well are seeing more victims targeted. Right. And again, disproportionate to past trends prior to the conflict. So... Yeah, it's really interesting that, again, we have this example of a trend on the ground, an incident on the ground showing and, and sort of, I guess, giving a good example of what we're seeing more broadly. Yeah. I, it's, I think, it, sorry, go ahead, Mark. No, no I was, was going to build on a point you made earlier, Joe, on the, the exfiltration. I think it's a useful point to bring into the conversation right now. On the cases we've seen, 
um, that if I was a better person, I was saying that it's potentially linked to this this trend that we're maybe predicting. And Nick, you'll not have us back onto this podcast in a month if we get it wrong, <laughs> but that's fine. It's okay, um, guys. Uh, we've not seen exfiltration of data. Right. Which is completely right. so, against so, their so modus operandi. you have dealt with live Conti cases where the ransomware has been deployed, systems have been encrypted, and what you would typically expect to be a joint extortion with disruption plus exfiltration is gone back to a, a, a basically a simple extortion. Yeah, just operational extortion. Wow. Where they only encrypt data. You know, this is happening as we speak, but the forensics are saying no indication of exfiltration. It's not appeared on their site just yet. Was there a threat of extortion? Was there a mention of extortion by 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 the group? Or was it just, you know, back in the old days of of Sony and, and North Korea of kind of like, here's your systems are unavailable? In the note, guys, indication of it, as always, sometimes the notes change, which gives you a little bit of an indication. Uh, I think I think we have seen a little bit of a drop mm -hmm. in the real short term of exfiltration of data, which is interesting. Yeah. Sometimes you can clearly see it's because the threat actors made a mistake. Um, right. They've they've sort of been booted out the network before they've had their chance to do yeah. do what they needed to do. They've only encrypted ten percent of the systems. They're only but, human, I suppose. Yeah, they're yeah. only human. We we all make mistakes. Uh, but but going back to these sort of again, I'm not talking big big sort of yeah. sample set here. You, you apply the sort of geopolitical angle here that we've talked about, and then you apply the fact that there's no exfiltration of data, it starts to paint this pretty interesting picture of, well, all they are interested in is reputational damage and operational downtime. Market tracks back to the shady, deep and dark website of this, and we're seeing victims' names still. Yeah. And that's happening despite what you're saying, and typically these sites are used only really as an avenue for leak of data right. to sort of drive an extortion payment through sort of you know leaking of data over time to show the group serious about what they've got and to, to sort of again financially sort of benefit from from the attack that they've spent a few a few days and weeks sort of doing and, and, and we're still seeing victims named even despite the fact these sites really should be used for data leak well, extortion. So so. Can we can we stop on this? Because I think we could talk about this for days, but I think this this gets to the crux of the so what for organizations who get hit by this? Because my question to you guys is, even if there's no data exfiltration, is the impact of being named on these websites, being named on these leak sites, essentially being publicly announced as having been breached, something that you see as, as equally impactful as, okay, there's actually data. I mean, obviously there are regulatory differences between the two, but Mark, I'd be interested in hearing from your experience of sort of now that we're seeing these cases, is the response the same? Yeah, I, going sort of broader quickly before we go down into that question, I've sort of said to a lot of clients recently that actually, you know, we will get you back up and running. We'll, we'll, we'll get this done from a technical perspective. I'm not suggesting it's easy. You know, I'm still in the job bluntly, but you know, it, it's like we've got we've got good process. Industry is good at understanding and responding to ransomware incidents. Now, the difference between a good and a bad response is how you handle your reputation. Not only from you know, I'm not just talking media. I'm talking if you get hacked and you go down, you are going to have a flood of questions from your customers, right. business, or sort of individuals like your eye of well, what happened? 
was my data involved? Was it not? And you'd get into this real sort of limbo of, well, I want to tell them, but I can't tell them because maybe we don't know right now. Or if we do know, it's not really a good enough answer. Because like I said, I think I said earlier, forensics can often only go so far. We can very rarely rule things out. If, in fact, we can't rule things out. All we yeah. can say is what we saw. So you get to this position where uh, the the real difference of responding is, yeah, how well you can manage these conversations that are back and forth. So coming back to the sort of exfiltration or not point, whether it happens, I think organizations are still struggling to to respond to that. And we're going to continue to see that. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the so what of how to respond doesn't necessarily change. Mm -hmm. uh, it's how do you manage that reputational fallout? Joe, what is it that you're seeing from these groups? Do you think that that current, what we're seeing with the conflict ongoing and these changes is going to be permanent? Is this a new normal? Or are we, are we going to come back to, you know, what was probably a less politically motivated and more financially motivated world? I think we have to get back there at some point. And, and, and these groups are businesses that are, that are revenue generating and, and how much they're making through their relationships that the may or may not exist with states is is certainly up for question but i don't think it, it's a leap to say that the majority of the revenue that they're making is from crime and, and from targeting and sort of receiving payments from victims they are businesses as i said and 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 profit will will drive these groups and we've seen it so many times before that when we experience the sort of uh, the targeting of a ransomware group by a law enforcement agency or an intelligence agency that, that disrupts their operations, makes them unviable from a financial sort of profiting perspective in, in, in receiving a payment from a victim or, or any other sort of impact on their business that, that makes it less viable. Typically what happens is they go quiet, they go dark, a month or two passes and, and, and next thing you know, there's a new group with a cool name uh, on, on the block. and shock horror, uh, they're reusing tools that are very similar to the group right. that's just disappeared a few months ago. So I expect that what we'll see is in the short to medium term, a continuation of these trends okay. and certainly a continuation of the sort of targeting patterns we're seeing in relation to Conti uh, activity. But there, there are a lot of people in these groups that, 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 that just want to make money. And, yeah. and I think they'll find a new way to do that. I think it'll be a new and sort of uh, an evolution of, of, of existing ransomware trends. And I don't see just given the profitability of ransomware as a criminal means of generating revenue, I don't see that going away. But as it exists currently, it's very hard to, to, to generate revenue if you're tied, as Mark was saying, to potentially a nation-state actor. Who right. So it's potentially self-defeating to some extent for a lot of these groups. Um, are you seeing, again, 12, 18 months down the line, a change in the tactics? I mean, one of the things that we've talked about over the past two years in our CTI team has been that supply chain compromise and particularly with software update poisoning as one of the potential major concerns that's coming down the line. Do you anticipate we're going to start seeing, again, those were nation state techniques for a very long time. Is that almost going to be passed down to these guys? A handing of the torch, you could say. Yes, exactly. I, I, I think so. The, one of the primary drivers here is efficiency and profit. And if you can reach through targeting one, I'm not talking about a Microsoft or, or Google here, a sort of a medium or smaller supplier that might have 100, 200, 300, 1,000 clients that, that sit in its portfolio. And if you can reach all those clients either through disrupting the supply chain company or, or actually directly installing a, a sort of a malware into their clients using the sort of remote access tools or, or the software solution itself, 
it just seems like a really effective way to to sort of disrupt, to obtain really sensitive data from a large number of victims to, to drive quite quite a healthy profit there. So I, I think that'll be a key vector for sure in and around the, the vectors that we spoke of earlier that will be be a vector for, for as long as we're in this industry. So so agree, Nick. Yeah, it's a, that's a big one. Well, I, th- I think I, we always use the term trickle down. Uh, you know, the, the trickle down effect of nation state advance tactics being sort of trickling down to the cyber criminal world. Uh, that's going to continue to happen. You know, 18, 24 months is quite a long, long way to predict, Nick. I'm going to have a few more grey hairs for sure. But, uh, I, you know, we're going to continue to see that trickle down effect, of course. But I think the, you know, the Ukrainian crisis will probably have accelerated in the short term, at least some trickle down effect of these, you know, tools or, or zero day vulnerabilities that, you know, we've just not come across yet. Yeah. But someone's using for some sly means and it gets picked up in the broader sort of cyber, cyber criminal world. So we're going to see a bounce back. You know, I said earlier, it's been a little bit of quiet for us right now. Um, I think we're going to see a bounce back to your point. They've probably run out of money to fill up their Lamborghinis and right. with the increase of <laughs> petrol prices and probably That's not- That's true, it's not a crisis so, for everyone. Not, not so great fuel efficiency. They're going to have to jump back onto the ransomware bandwagon pr- pretty rapidly, I'm sure. And and Mark, just just on them coming back and, and that sort of, when you look at, at the potential evolution that they have, do you, do you think there's going to need to be a change in the way people respond to these or the same principles, just like vectors, like phishing are always going to be around, are the same principle always going to be true? So staying in our world of the sort of the technical angle, I I think the principles are going to remain pretty similar. The the methodologies we apply have stayed true for, for 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 the last few years that they've changed when we had the whole introduction of data extortion. What, what, what is changing, again, outside, outside my area of remit, is the regulatory landscape. Right. So what changes, what we do is when when GDPR came in. It's the pressure. We're, we're, yeah, we're, we're going way back in time. I think probably done, done GDPR enough. But as, as <laughs> these regulations change, as the interpretations of these regulations change, post an incident that we're helping with organisations, you know, consumers are all standing up and saying, "You've lost my data. I want some money." Yeah, and, that, and that's massively changing right from the beginning how we respond to this incident. It's changing the level of scrutiny we apply. It's changing the level of evidence preservation that we need to apply, which which does on a small level it change how we changes how how we're going to respond. But the, the the broader principles, I think, certainly from a cyber crisis management perspective, will remain the same. I think. And to some extent, I guess that's quite reassuring when we're talking about this deep evolution and then sort of the paradigm shift from the get-go. At the end of the day, the tried and tested principles of crisis management and response remain the core thing. I wanted to thank you both for joining the podcast. It's been a real pleasure to have you. And uh, we look forward to a follow-up episode, even if you have a few more gray hair, Mark. Well, I'll try and get the predictions right next time. Thank you, Nick. (laughs) Right. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, guys. If you enjoyed what you heard on this episode of In Focus, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen. And be sure to subscribe to our other podcasts as well, such as The Global Insight, our fortnightly panel discussion exploring the impact of the most pressing issues on global business. All of our podcasts are available wherever you listen. Just search Control Risks. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we are helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com.